You're listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. It is our desire that you will be helped by this Bible message. A few weeks ago, I uh, told you we were going to start a series on the life of John the Baptist. I don't think it's going to be a long series. I think it'll probably be about three or four weeks, but we started a couple weeks ago and we talked about the announcement of John the Baptist's birth in Luke chapter 1 and of course uh, how God uh, answered the prayer of Zacharias and Elizabeth and how uh, God promised them they were going to have a son, but this wasn't going to be any uh, ordinary son. This was going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And uh, we saw that a few weeks ago in, uh, on a Sunday morning. And so if you missed that message, I'd encourage you to go back. But today I'd like to jump into the significance of the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, we're not going to look at his ministry yet. We're just going to look at what God said was going to be true about John the Baptist in his life and in his ministry. Brother Dan read for us verses 15 through 17, and I want to draw your attention to verse 15. The Bible says, and this is prophetic, this was before he was born, but the Bible says that he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's a powerful statement right there. You know, I'd like for it to be said of me. I'd like for it to be said of you. I'd like for it to be said of my family. I'd like for it to be said of our church that there were some people that were great in the sight of God. Now, there's a big difference between being great in uh, God's sight and being great in man's sight because God and man see things very differently. The Bible says in 1 Samuel, we'll look at this a little bit tonight, but when they were, uh, Samuel went to anoint the next king of Israel, uh, uh, he, Samuel, the prophet, he was really fooled. He thought for sure it'd be one of David's other brothers, but God said, oh no, Samuel, time out. You see, man looks at the what? the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He sees the things that we don't see. And so when we're talking about being great in the sight of God, I'm not talking about how you dress today. I'm not talking about if your tie is straight. And normally my tie starts off straight in the morning. And by the time I get done preaching, it's all over. It's all, uh, in the words of Lacey and Savannah, it's whoppy jaw, right? You know, it just gets all, but hey, that's okay. Yeah, we're, we're having a good time. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about how good your hair looks. I will tell you for me, I'm not trying to brag, but it is a pretty good hair day for me. Um, When you only have three, you know, it's not hard to, you know, keep those three in line. And uh, some of you that have a full head of hair, maybe you had a, a harder time with it today. I'm not talking about how your hair looks or how your clothes look. I'm not talking about what you did this week that maybe impressed people because they noticed. I'm talking about the God in heaven that sees our heart. He knows the thoughts and intents. He, he knows what you think. He knows, he knows uh, the, the motives that you and I have for everything that we do. And I want it to be said that here was somebody who was great, not in man's eyes. He didn't get the, uh, the, the applause of man, but here's somebody who got the approval of God. He was great in the sight of the Lord. I think about if you're looking for a job and you go to interview for that job, 
You want to know what the boss is looking for. You want to know what that company is looking for. And you may have a, a really impressive resume, but if it's not what that company needs, then they're probably going to say, I'm sorry, that's not what we're looking for. Maybe you uh, are, are, are trying to sell a house or maybe you, you, you're selling a car and, and someone comes and, and they say, you know, it's great. It's, it, it's wonderful for somebody, but it's not exactly what we are looking for. I remember as a boy, I enjoyed it a lot. My dad uh, taught in a Christian school for 20 years and uh, in the summer times he had more free time. And he would do other jobs and other uh, odds and ends and all that. But one of the things my dad did was he, he collected, not just for fun, but he actually, he made it a little bit of a business, but he collected baseball cards. And he would buy and sell baseball cards. And, and, and I got to do it with him. I enjoyed it so much. Uh, I remember uh, some of the old baseball cards that my dad would get. And uh, my dad and, and his brother Jim is here, but they were big uh, New York Yankees fans. At least, at least dad was, right, Jim? You were too. And uh, I remember for dad, we'd be looking at old baseball cards. And, you know, there were some good, there were some good, good old baseball players. You know, the uh, Hank Aaron, who I guess just passed away a day or two ago, and Willie Mays. But my dad always had a special place in his heart for the New York Yankees. When it was a Mickey Mantle. Anybody know that name, Mickey Mantle? Uh, when it was a Mickey Mantle card, it just seemed like that kind of got my dad's attention. Or maybe it was a Roger Maris or maybe a, a Whitey Ford. And those were kind of the, the, the players that when my dad was little, those would have been the, the superstars. And you go back further, there were some other Yankees greats like uh, Babe Ruth and some of those, Joe DiMaggio and all that. But I remember we'd, we'd look at these baseball cards and there was a lot of things that you looked for that determined the worth and the value. One thing you looked for was what year the card was. Some years were harder to get than others. And if it was a rookie card, that was always more valuable. Now, I don't know if I'm speaking Greek or not, but does, did anybody ever collect baseball cards or anything? So you know, you have an idea what I'm talking about? Y'all missed out on all this stuff. Well, we might be here a while because I've got to start from the very beginning. No, no. But, um, but you'd look at the year. Uh, you would look at the brand. Back in the olden, olden days, there really was only one brand. There was Topps brand. But then it became there'd be more baseball card manufacturers. There was uh, Topps and there was a, a Fleer. And for a few years, there was a Donruss, which was kind of, I don't think that was around a long time. And, and depending on the brand of the card, uh, that also would determine the value. But then there was something that really made a huge difference. And that was the condition of the baseball card. You didn't want to have a baseball card where the edges were bent. You didn't want to have a baseball card where there was a crease down the middle. You could have a card that if it were in mint condition, it could be worth hundreds of dollars. But if it were not in mint condition, it could be worth a few dollars. That was a very big factor. And so we'd go and we'd look at these cards and you'd put them in uh, uh, protective cases and just make sure they were right. You, had, you couldn't keep them in uh, a moist place where they'd get water damage and you couldn't keep them in direct sunlight. You really had to take care of them. It was kind of a neat thing. But I remember when we would go to these baseball card shops or these baseball card shows that they would have sometimes at like hotel conference rooms or things and we'd look. I remember some people, they were very, very into it. They'd have magnifying glasses and they would examine every detail of that card. Can I tell you, God 
is looking for some things in our lives. And can I tell you, I want to be pleasing in God's sight. I want it to be said, hey, there's somebody who was doing what God was looking for, and here is someone who was great in the sight of God. David said it like this in Psalm 19. He said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I want to encourage you this week, let's live thinking about what it looks like from God's point of view. Let's make sure that we are pleasing in the sight of a holy God. You see, God sees everything. God sees uh, 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 the, the heart. God knows our thoughts. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. So how can we be great in the sight of God? I want you to notice quickly in this passage, I see number one, God says that uh, the, the angel says that John the Baptist would be great in the sight of the Lord and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Now that's interesting. And maybe you're here saying, well, I got that one covered. I don't drink. Good. I'm glad you don't. I hope you don't. But that's not all that this is talking about. For John the Baptist, he had taken a Nazarite vow. Remember in the Old Testament, remember Samson had taken a vow like that, a Nazarite vow. And if those who were under the Nazarite vow, there were some things they could not and they would not do that maybe other people would do. One was they were not allowed to take from the grapes or from the vines and they were not allowed to have any of that. They were also not allowed to cut their hair. Remember for Samson, he lost his strength when uh, his hair was cut and that was his strength because that was his vow that he had made to God. Now, can I tell you, there was another part of that Nazarite vow and that was that they were not to touch any dead animals or dead bodies. They were not allowed to go near those. As a matter of fact, Samson got himself in trouble because he had killed a lion and then he went back later and remember what was in that lion carcass? There was that honey and he had uh, defiled that Nazarite vow. Nobody even knew about it, but those were, those were vows of separation. Those were vows that uh, Samson took. Those were vows that John the Baptist took. Uh, Samuel, also the Bible records for us that he was uh, under some Nazarite vows. Some people get confused. They think Jesus was because he was from Nazarene. Jesus did not take a Nazarite vow. That's why it always bothers, personally, it bothers me. I see all these pictures of Jesus with this long hair because Jesus did not have long hair. And I don't think the Apostle Paul would have said, it's a shame for a man to have long hair if Jesus had long hair. But that's another message for another day. But John the Baptist was separate. He was different. Why could he not have uh, the wine? Well, Ephesians 5 says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. He couldn't have that wine because that wine would control John the Baptist. And John the Baptist needed to be controlled by God. He didn't need to be controlled by something else. Why no dead bodies? Well, the dead bodies, I believe, are a picture of the flesh. 
a picture of the old nature. In some cases, I think it's an illustration of dead religion. Some of us, uh, we need to get away from some of the, this dead stuff and we need to realize, hey, we get to serve God and we serve a risen Savior. And when we come to church, hey, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, it's not a funeral. It's a, it's a celebration. We celebrate our risen Savior and our risen Lord. And I'm glad that we don't believe in dead religion around here, but, but the Nazarite vow was to stay away from a, a dead body, a dead carcass. You see, the Nazarites, they were different. They were peculiar. We are not in a, in a time where we're asking anybody to sign up for a Nazarite vow. So please don't come to the altar at the invitation and say, Brother Dan, God spoke to me. I want to take on the Nazarite vow. We're not asking anybody to do that. But we are asking God's people, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. We are asking God's people to be different from the world. The Bible says ye are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You are a peculiar people. Now, I know some Christians that have taken that the other way, and they said, well, you got to be different. You got to be weird. You got to be strange. No, you don't. We got enough of that stuff. But we do need some Christians that will be different and set apart and holy and consecrated and godly and Christians that will say, I don't want to be like the world, but I want to be like Jesus. That goes against our culture. Our culture is fighting so hard just to make sure that everybody fits in. This world is screaming at you saying, hey, you don't have to be different. You don't have to uh, live uh, uh, by an old fashioned book like the Bible. And you don't have to follow rules and you can live however you want. And hey, just do whatever feels good. That's what the world says. But I want to tell you, that's not what God says. I'm glad that God loves us no matter what. Did you know that God loves you no matter what? You're a Christian and you're living for God and you go out today and you live for the devil. You live like the prodigal son and you waste your life and all the filth and all the junk and you get involved in, in, in drinking and drugs and immorality and you get around the wrong crowd and you're in the pig pen. I got good news for you. God still loves you. But I also want to tell you, God is not pleased when his children live a life that is contrary to what he has given us in his word. This book was not written because God was in heaven one day bored saying, oh, maybe I'll just write some things that are interesting. God gave us his word and all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God loves you no matter what you do. God loves you no matter how you live. But God is pleased when his children live a life in accordance with the word of God. God wants you to be separate from the world, not just on the outside, but on the inside. I think sometimes we, we try to work so hard on the outside that we miss the point. And the point is, if you and I, if we'll get our hearts right with God, the outside's going to take care of itself. If we will work on the internal, guess what? The external will be a whole lot easier if we'll start on the inside. God wants your heart. God wants your heart to be holy and pure. God wants you to stand out. God wants you to be different. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, that as Christians, we are to come out from among the world and we are to be separate, saith the Lord. What, what fellowship hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? The answer is none. 
Light and darkness are opposites. Christ and Satan, those are opposites. And we are not to try to fit in and we're not trying to, to straddle the fence. We're supposed to be like Jesus. We ought to be separate from the world. I still believe that Christians ought to act like Christians. I believe Christians ought to talk like Christians. I believe Christians ought to think like Christians. I think we ought to think like God thinks. And I think we ought to strive to be holy. And I don't believe this book is outdated. I don't believe that this book needs to be rewritten. I think this book needs to be reread. And I think it needs to be lived. And I think we need to get back to being separate from this old world. First John chapter 2, the Bible says, Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Number one, I believe John the Baptist was great in the sight of God because, number one, he was separate from the world. But secondly, I want you to notice that John the Baptist was spirit-filled. The Bible says in verse number 15, He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but keep in mind, Pentecost had not happened. Acts chapter 2 had not taken place yet. And so the, 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 the believers in this day and the believers in the Old Testament that looked ahead in faith towards the coming of Christ, they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit like you and I have. You see, if you're here this morning, you're listening this morning, and you have been saved, you've been born again, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you 24-7. That was not true in John the Baptist's day. That was, not, that was not true in the Old Testament times. The Spirit of God would come, and the Spirit of God would go at times, but the Spirit of God did not indwell the, the believers in these days. But John the Baptist had the Holy Spirit of God from his mother's womb. You see, this was a new concept for John the Baptist and for that era. But I want to tell you, it should not be a new concept for Christians today. It should not be earth shattering. Oh, we've got the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you've got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit walks with you and the Holy Spirit talks with you and the Holy Spirit leads you and guides you. And can I tell you, we are doing ourselves a great disservice when we try to live our lives in the power of the flesh and when we do not live according to the power of the Holy Spirit. There was a group of preachers years ago they gathered and they were discussing an upcoming conference they were going to have. And they were trying to figure out who they were going to have come preach at their conference. One of the preachers suggested, they said, hey, how about if we get D.L. Moody? Why don't we ask him to come and preach? And one of the other preachers replied and said, why do we have to have D.L. Moody? I think he was tired of hearing that name or whatever. And he said, does uh, D.L. Moody have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit or what? And the preacher answered him and said, no, he said, D.L. Moody doesn't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. Can I tell you, the Holy Spirit ought to have a monopoly on your life. The Holy Spirit ought to have full control. The Holy Spirit ought to, to, ought to affect every decision you make, every word that comes out of your mouth. Everything you do this week, every place you go, everything you watch and everything you listen to and everybody you get around this week, the Holy Spirit ought to have a part in controlling that because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Galatians 5, 
says we're to walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5 says we're to crucify our flesh with the affections and lusts and we're to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. You say, well, pastor, if I've got the Holy Spirit, it should be easy to, to live the Christian life and it should be easy to do what's right. It should be, except you still have an old nature and I still have an old nature. And you know what the flesh does? The flesh fights against the Holy Spirit of God every single day. And that fight will go on until you go to glory because we have that old flesh. You say, well, what do I do? How do I get the victory over the flesh? You crucify it. You put it to death. You mortify the flesh. You, 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 you put it down every single day and say, oh, Lord, I'm going to yield to the Spirit. I'm going to get in the book. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to pray. I'm going to walk with God. And I am not going to let the flesh control my life. John the Baptist was Spirit-filled, number three. He was soul-conscious. Would you notice? And again, this is prophecy of what his ministry would be. But this was all fulfilled. It says in verse 16, many of the children of Israel, many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. You know, that's why we are here today, to point people to Jesus Christ. We're not here to win people to ourselves. We're not here to win people to Victory Baptist Church. We're not here so that people will pat us on the back. We are here to point people to Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. That is why God left us here. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, the Bible says, They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. You know what that verse is teaching? that there is an eternal reward for people that will point people to Jesus Christ. Mrs. Askew sang that song. She sang it at the drive-in also, so powerful. People need the Lord. And I want to tell you that as Christians, as God's people, we've been saved. But we have a responsibility to be soul conscious. We have a responsibility to, to look at people that we come in contact with every day, every week, every month, and say, is this person saved? Does this person know Christ as Savior? And if they don't, we need to witness to them. If they don't, we need to pray for them. If they don't, we need to do all we can to point them and, and turn them in the direction of Christ. We're having, we've had this for, for years, but we have now on Thursdays and Saturdays, we have blitzing and We've been doing a lot of that now, especially with the pandemic. We've not been doing a lot of knocking on doors and, 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 and talking to people and certainly not going in the homes, but you can stand outside and talk to people. But we've been blitzing, and my desire here in these next few weeks, especially as the weather starts getting a little bit nicer, I think as a church, I think we ought to get on board and say, hey, we're going to do all we can to blanket our area with the gospel. You know why? Because people need the Lord even when COVID's going on. People need the Lord even when the economy is, is unsure. People need the Lord even when politics is out of control. People need the Lord. And I think people right now, I think people are searching. I think people realize, hey, they don't have all the answers and they don't have it figured out and they don't know what's going on. But I got good news for you. Jesus Christ is the answer and we can turn people to Christ. I think we ought to be more passionate about that than anything else in life. I've, I've been amazed, and I think I've, I've, we've all been 
uh, uh, emotionally involved for sure. But I've been amazed at how Christians have gotten so focused on politics that I think some Christians have more confidence in Donald Trump than they did in Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something. If your confidence is in a man, you will be disappointed. If your confidence is in a political party, you will be disappointed. But if your confidence is in Jesus Christ, I want to tell you, you'll never be disappointed. You'll never be let down. You'll never be led astray. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus and let's turn people to Jesus rather than turning people to ourselves. Say, well, why is it so important? What happens to people if they don't turn to the Lord? Revelation 20 tells us the end of the story. Revelation 20, anybody that does not trust Christ, who, whosoever was not found written in the book of life, the Bible says that they were cast into a lake of fire. I'm talking about real fire and real flames. And I'm talking about real torment and, and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I'm so thankful that heaven's real and I'm so thankful the streets of gold and the gates of pearl are real. But I want to tell you, as real as heaven is, hell is also a real place. And people are still dying and going to hell. And we must do all we can to point them to Jesus Christ. Number four, I see John the Baptist was great in the sight of God. Number one, he was separate from the world. He was spirit-filled. Number two, number three, he was soul-conscious. But number four, he was showing others the right way. Of course, we need to show people how to be saved. Of course, people need to get saved. But once a person gets saved, they need to be taught. They need to be instructed. They need somebody to be an example and show them the right way. Would you notice in chapter 1 of the book of Luke, in verse number 17, He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, or Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy found in the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, that, that John the Baptist would come on the scene and he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, now here's what we're talking about. Did you know we are living in a world where relationships are so messed up? I'm talking about parents and children. I'm talking about grandparents and grandchildren. I'm talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about family members. I'm talking about neighbors and coworkers and church members. Did you know that we do not have time to waste our lives being bitter? I got news for you. I'm glad you're saved. I'm glad you're going to heaven. That's the most important thing. But once you get saved, we ought to live a life that's pleasing to God and a life that glorifies the Lord. And being bitter your whole life doesn't help anybody. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even help you. It makes it worse. It makes you miserable. And we've got fathers that need to be turned to the children and children to fathers and husbands and wives. And we've got relationships that need to be mended. And John was going to help to show others the right way. Now, I'll give you, I'll give you a word of advice. You didn't ask for it, but that's what preachers do, right? They tell people what to do. But I'll give you a word of advice, and I hope I, I, hope I have lived this advice. But it's not going to do a whole lot of good for you to tell somebody else what they need to do if you're not doing it. You know, the best message you could ever preach to somebody is not with your mouth. 
but it's with your life. And you know what we need? We need some people that will say, this week, I'm going to go out and I'm going to live it. Yeah, no, still tell it. Still, still help people. Uh, still encourage people and still show people the right way to live. But why don't we show by our example? Why don't we show by our words and why don't we show by our family and why don't we show the world what God has done in us and how God changed us, not just our eternity, but he changed our life. He turned our life around and he gave us meaning and purpose to live. And John the Baptist was great in the sight of God because he showed others the right way. He turned the hearts of the fathers to the children. Number five, and I'll be done. It says in verse 17, and that he would make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I wonder this morning, what about you? Are you ready to meet the Lord? Number one, I hope you're saved. Because if you're not saved, you're not ready to meet the Lord. But if you are saved, if you have trusted Christ as Savior, yes, you're going to heaven. But I want to ask you, are you right with God? Would you say if Jesus came this morning, if the trumpet sounded at 1154 on Sunday morning in Roanoke Rapids, I'm ready to meet the Lord. There's nothing between my soul and the Savior. If you're not, I want to ask you, when are you going to get ready? Because Jesus could come before noon. Jesus could come before the day is over. Jesus could come before the week is over. Are you ready? John the Baptist came on the scene and he said, I want to make ready a people prepared to meet the Lord. I've told you the story before, but it's such a, a, a vivid illustration in my mind. When my dad began to pastor in Geneseo, Illinois, it's just a tiny little town in uh, the cornfields of uh, northwest Illinois, kind of near the southeast Iowa area. And uh, that little town, uh, the, the church was an old white clapboard building, very narrow, right there on the town square. Uh, they had some old pictures with, uh, with dirt roads and hitching posts out in front of that old church. And that old church, we saw, you know, remodel and additions. And eventually uh, they uh, went to another location, built a much larger place. But that little church building on that little corner, there was a junior high school across the street and a bed and breakfast, a kitty corner, a Victorian bed and breakfast. And there was a, uh, a, excuse me, across the street and then kitty corner was the city park. It was just kind of right in that little area. When we got there, and some of you remember this from the early days, but when we got there, the church had over the front door, it had a neon sign. Now, it was pretty close to the downtown district. And so they said it was kind of funny. Sometimes people would pull up they see this neon sign, they pull up, they think this is a bar. And they pull up and they see First Baptist Church. It was a, it was a Christian bar. No, 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 it wasn't that, it wasn't that. They'd see, they'd see First Baptist Church. I had to wake some of you up because you're, you're getting ready for your, your afternoon nap a little early. But First Baptist Church, but then the neon sign said this, Jesus is coming, are you ready? And the church was known for, for years in that town. It was known as the church with the neon sign. And we kept that up. And I think through one of the remodel projects, it came down and it just kind of, it was an ancient, I don't know where they got it from. And, uh, and by the way, we're not going to put one up here. So don't go order a sign and say, we're going to put it out. No, we're not putting up a neon sign out here. So don't get any ideas. But that was pretty cool. I thought that was neat. But the sign, the message of that sign ought to be the message that we think about every day. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? 
Jesus is coming, friend. Are you, are you ready for him to come today? Uh, before you go to bed tonight, you ought to think Jesus could come back tonight. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you ought to think, hey, Monday, but, but Jesus could come back today. John the Baptist made ready a people prepared for the Lord. I think about the prayer of David in Psalm 139. And here's what he said. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Friend, I, as the pastor of this church, I feel like it's my responsibility to make sure that we have a church that is ready to meet God. But I can't get you ready more than I can preach and pray and help and encourage and do all that at the end of the day. You must make sure in your heart and in your life that you're ready. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. For more information about our ministry, please visit our website at vbcrr.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week. Thank you.